0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Almighty God, we are thankful for the privilege of crying out to you, Abba, Father, to call you Dad. It is a remarkable privilege, one for us, the gift from the cross. We say thank you. And we pray that you would draw near to us, Dad. You would draw near to us, in the person of your Spirit, to lift up before us your Son to your honor. You'll work here this morning through your word and help us to deal with this subject that's at hand, which can be sobering. Help us to deal with it well, not proudly and to not shrink back from it, but to deal with it evenly, soberly. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this to, to call into our lives, to to send into our lives, if we are Christians here, to send into Your children a great sense of rejoicing and, and a desire for a coming day. And for those who are not yet Yours here, I pray You would call them to You, men and women, boys and girls, that You would call them to You use some of the sobering facts from this passage today to, to, to do a work that lifts up your name and builds a people. And I pray that for the glory of your name and for the good of your church, Christ's church. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Second Samuel chapter 8. We spent two weeks, the last two weeks, looking at chapter seven, a very important chapter, because it contains God's great promise to David, known as the, the covenant to David, the Davidic covenant, laid out for us in chapter seven, and we saw that before that what led up to chapter seven was David being settled and secure in Jerusalem and as king living in a palace, and he looked out and saw that the ark of the Lord, the throne of the real king, throne of the Lord, just lived in a tent. And he thought that was appropriate, And so he determined that I'm king in a palace. I'm going to build a palace for the Lord. I'm going to build a temple for him. And at first, the prophet Nathan said, great, go for it. And then that night, the Lord spoke to him and said, no, actually tell David, I'm going to build him a house. He wants to build me a house. I'm actually going to build him a house. He wants to provide refuge for me. I'm actually the one who provides refuge for him. So communicate that to him. I'm going to build him a house. I'm going to give him shelter. And through him, I'm going to do the same for my people now and forever. The Lord makes that great promise and David hears it and then responds, as we saw last week in the last half of the chapter, he responds in stunned, humble worship and then in bold petition. He sees the Lord make this promise and he sees in it God. Not just the promise, but he sees the God of the promise. He sees a God who is great highly exalted, and sees himself then as, by comparison, nothing. Who am I compared to you? Who am I? And he worships before him. And then prays, hallowed be your name, like you said it would be. Your kingdom come, like you said it would be. Your will be done, like you said it would be. He grabs a hold of the promises of God and prays, set up the kingdom of David, now and forever, for the glory of your name, for the glory of David, for the good of your people, do it. That's what he prays. Bring the promised kingdom to David. That's where chapter 7 ends in prayer, and then that's what chapter 8 shows us. The first steps into the fulfillment of that promise happen right immediately in chapter 8. The kingdom takes off under David, under the Lord. We see several promises that were made in chapter 7 fulfilled here. It gives us a view of what the kingdom of God under his chosen king looks like so as to show us what it will always look like and what it will one day gloriously look like. It's how all the Old Testament's working; is working. It's, it's preparing us for what's coming. So we see here the kingdom of God under David and know what the kingdom of God under David will be like and will be like. That's what we're going to look at today. Let me read all of chapter 8 and then I'll pass back through it to Make a few observations about some of the details, and then make a couple of overarching observations. This is 2 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death. And one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadazer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Batah and from Barothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toi sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toi. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people, Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. 2 Samuel 8 passage begins with just the, the time marker after this. We don't have any other specifications on when exactly it happened, and really all of these events would have taken quite some time. So what we're seeing here again is a gathering together of different events to, to present to us, out, out of chronological order, to present to us a picture, to, to present a, a status, namely the carrying out of the first stages of the promises made to David in chapter 7. God had promised David, I'm going to make you a great name. Well, that happens right here, chapter 13, it's here. And he promised him that he would give him rest from all of his enemies, and that's here too. And he promised the people of the Lord that he would give them a place, he would plant them in a land of safety and security, that's here too. Then he promised that he would make a great name for himself, that the Lord would make a name for himself, that's here also. It's all here through several military campaigns, starting in verse 1. And they all have something in common, which is going to prove the sobering point of today's chapter. A repeated word seven times throughout the chapter. Sometimes it's translated as defeated. Sometimes as struck down. Older translations render it smote. That's a great word. Except for the fact that it's telling us something hard smoked struck down over and over again throughout this chapter, seven times. Starting in verse one with that ancient enemy, the Philistines. He defeated them, smote them, and subdued them, taking hold of Metheg Amah, which might be a reference to a particular city, but there's a metaphor in it. The word essentially means several words in this chapter are kind of important in their meanings. This is one Bridle of the mother Picture what's being depicted there A horse, if you grab a hold of the bridle of a horse You you control the horse So the bridle of the mother the, The heart and soul of the people Perhaps referring to a particular city Used to be in the hand of the Philistines And David said, I'll take that And he holds the Philistines Striking them down As he did with Moab to the east, that's to the west, now he we move to the east, other side of the Dead Sea. and David measures them out. Uh, a very strong depiction here of control. If, if you can do this to a people, you are in charge. Often in the scriptures, measuring lines are used to depict control, and here he measures out the people and, and strikes down many. And in the verse two, they became servants and paid tribute. A repeated theme develops here. From the nations, servants and tribute paid to David, paid to the Lord. And then we get verses 3 to 12, David's dealings with Hadad-Ezer to the north. We were to the west and then to the east and now to the north. Hadad-Ezer, whose name means Hadad is help. Hadad the help. Hadad is another name for the common Canaanite god often known as Baal. Baal, all the peoples of the area worshipped this one god and called him different names. And in the north he was known as Hadadezer. And so here is a man who says, this idol Hadad is my help. And he has a big empire to the north there, and David knows he's a threat, so he goes to attack him near the Euphrates River. And he ends up with men and horses captured and ends up with a force controlling Damascus after the Syrians pile in and try to help Hadadezer. He defeats them too. In verse 6, they became servants to David and brought tribute. How is that? Verse, end of the verse. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And with this help from the Lord, verse 7, David collected the gold shields of the servants of Hadad, is our help. Little pun there collected all their gold and from their cities all their bronze he's collecting the plunder of the nations and bringing it back to himself and he gained the loyalty of one hadad Hadadezer's enemies verse 9 the king named toy whose territory is even further to the north north of hadad toy's relieved because david has defeated one of his his longtime enemies hadad and he sends his son Joram, verse 10, to honor David and bring him treasures, articles of silver and gold and bronze. Brought by Joram, whose name also is significant. Because if you read the parallel account of this in Chronicles, Chronicles tells a lot of the same stories. In Chronicles, Toi's son is known as Hadoram. Can you guess the root of his name? Hadoram, Hadad. It used to be Hadad, be exalted. That's what his name means. And evidently, he changed his name to Yah be exalted, Joram. Perhaps just a politically astute move, seeing who's in charge now, but it's a correct statement nonetheless. He's realized Hadad is no help, but Yahweh is. Yahweh be exalted. I'll name my son now, Joram. David took those treasures and together with all the silver and gold he'd gathered from all the other nations he had subdued and he, sub- and he dedicated them to the Lord and made a name for himself, it says. Of course, it was the Lord doing it because, again, one more time we get in verse 14, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went, whether striking down the Edomites or all these other people. And the end result... Verse 15 and following, David reigned over all Israel, administering justice and equity to all the people. This is a secure, safe, expanded, triumphant, newly wealthy land with good government, various priests, some Levitical, as the law prescribed, and some non-Levitical, just people dedicated to the service of the Lord in the house of the Lord's anointed. And the land has a triumphant rest. That's chapter 8. I'm going to make two observations about it. And the first one will have something difficult for us to consider, I think. But here it is. Despite all opposition, David's promised kingdom comes. Despite all opposition, David's promised kingdom comes. The bulk of this passage is describing the the initial look at the fulfillment of the promises made in the previous chapter about a name for David and and freedom from his enemies and rest in in a place of of prosperity and, and bounty and peace for the people. It's all for the sake of of their good, for the sake of the name of David, but ultimately for the sake of the name of the Lord who's the one who gave him power. It says here twice. The only reason this happens is because the Lord gives David victory. Toy changes his name, the name of his son not to David be exalted, but to Yahweh be exalted. Everybody's clear. This is because of God. So we see a little picture here of some of the promises being fulfilled. And and we're going to come back to that. That's that's a, a wonderful, good thing. But we're going to put a little finer point on this, the particular emphasis is how the promises get fulfilled. The repeated word throughout the chapter gives us a picture of a warrior wading through the enemies of God, striking, 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 to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, the Philistines, the Moabites, the one who trusts in the idol Hadad and the ones who would help him, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, the Edomites, struck down. David smote them all. And over their dead bodies in their burned cities, the kingdom came. Over their dead bodies, and in their burned cities, the kingdom came. Through much opposition, despite near universal opposition, at every point of the compass all around, people say, absolutely not. And David, and the power of the Lord says, absolutely And he strikes them down, 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 strikes them down. down. Seven times. That's the hard part. Clearly it shows, at every turn it shows, Hadad is no God. The power of man is no power. God alone is the one who, who decrees, who promises, and makes happen. So there, there is clearly an exaltation of God, but the difficult part for us is it's an exaltation that is difficult because we, we are we are much more comfortable with the idea of a king of peace. We are, we are much more familiar with the idea of of the kingdom spreading graciously and kindly i mean that's that's the language that we that we that runs through our church through our our vocabulary through our minds grace and mercy and peace and hope and joy as it should because it's everywhere and we are certainly going to talk about that this morning we are it's coming later but we have to reckon with the fact this is the hard part that most of the world Wants nothing to do with it despite the reality behind all of those words. Blessing and peace and rest and joy and grace and mercy, love. Forever, all the way to the very end, most of the world will say absolutely not. And despite that, God in His King says absolutely. And the kingdom comes. We considered before, we considered, if you look back, mentally, if you look back into chapter 7 and you see there the promise of the glorious kingdom, of a great and wonderful kingdom, where, finally, is what God promised fulfilled? Where, finally, is God with the people dwelling in their midst with no more tears and no more crying and the old order of things passed away? Where, finally, we 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 went ahead and we tied that... that's Revelation 21 and what Revelation 21 describes. The eternal rest, the new heaven and the new earth. No more pain and no more loss. The Great One, the Great One for whom we were made in union with Him. Which follows right on the heels of Revelation 20 and the last half of Revelation 19. You know it's there. Do you want some Revelation 20 and the last half of Revelation 19? The kingdom of Revelation 20 comes gloriously through something terrible in Revelation 20 and 19. A great warrior at the head of an irresistible army, striking, striking, striking all the opposition from every corner of the earth. And after he strikes them all down, he delivers up these subjugated enemies to the horror of horrors, the second death, judgment and hell. That's Revelation twenty. Right before we turn the page to Revelation twenty one and sing. The kingdom comes. But how the kingdom comes is sobering. Now, I'm talking about those chapters in Revelation, and there are, I acknowledge, there are good Bible believing Christians who read those chapters, 19 and 20, a little differently than I do, and some will say there's only one great battle there. I'm inclined to think there are two great battles there. This is a small difference. Don't, don't get lost in, the, in knowing what people differ about. We're differing about what shade of white this is. It's, it's white. It's, it's clear. It's stark. The king comes and puts an end to massive rebellion. Just like we're shown right here in the beginning. The kingdom comes over top of, in spite of, right through and set up in the midst of determined, fierce, universal opposition that fails. And the difficulty for us, as Christians hear this, the difficulty for Christians we hear this, is we are, we are often pulled in one of two directions. We are often pulled in some sort of a of a very short sighted, tragic boastfulness and pride. Yeah, they get what's coming to them. Them, they. Hold on there. Hold on there. We're in our life training class this morning. We're talking about Paul's comments of anguish as he considers his brethren who are going to get that. And he's anguished over it. We should be anguished over this reality. And we must not veer to the other extreme and dismiss this reality. There is a sobering, sobering truth here. People perish. Most people. And there's also... Right next to that is the sobering reality that they don't change. They perish. Which means they oppose the kingdom all the way to the end. And they oppose people in the kingdom all the way to the end. There are several sobering realities that we need to consider here about the world that we live in. It is a world at war. And it will not be negotiated away. The kingdom will not come in the end, ultimately, with a proclamation of peace. The kingdom comes, and I'm going to talk about this in a little bit, the kingdom comes now always with a proclamation of peace. And those who heed it, the kingdom comes to them. But that will not win over most of the world. And we need to be really clear about this, that in the end, the kingdom will come. There is a cost. There is is something on the table in rejecting the offer of peace. And what's on the table is it comes. Every knee will bow one way or the other. Everybody will be measured out. We do not talk about a game here. Christians hear that and those who are not. You are not hearing of a game or an option or a choice or a possibility. You are hearing about an ultimatum. Not from me. I am at most a spokesman. You're hearing about an ultimatum from the King who says, My kingdom will come. My will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Despite all opposition, it comes. We Christians need to understand that and understand what that does not say. Because the kingdom does not come now and it does not even come then with the sword in our hands. Revelation 19 depicts the great king coming at the head of an army, but it's the sword that comes out of his mouth that strikes everybody down, not ours. And we don't wield the sword now. This is extremely important to understand because you can read a passage like this and you can read the newspaper about Muslim murderers in a mall in Kenya and think, oh, this is just a Christian version, the same thing. They're walking through a mall saying, are you a Muslim, yes or no? If if, if the answer is yes, dead. If if the answer is no, I know I'm a Muslim, then they let him go. It happened in Nairobi yesterday. Probably still today even might be still going on. This is the Christian version. He's looking through there. He's saying, you know, all the people who aren't on his side, he's going to slaughter them. Same thing. Importantly, not the same thing. When we're reading the Old Testament, we're reading an old covenant that is set up to depict something in a physical world, in a physical nation that is a state. Is a government with a physical king over an ethnic people. And God's covenant blessing to them is depicted in, in that language. This land, this government against those enemies who want to eliminate you. It's all depicting something for us, pointing us forward to the time when the new covenant would come, which was always predicted. It's not like an add on later when the first thing didn't work. Always predicted always contained, always in sight. There's another king coming with another covenant coming that is a covenant of the heart with a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation under every government in every place. In other words, it's not about physical land, physical governments, physical life and death. The kingdom spreads everywhere here. That's not by force by word and prayer, as God conquers the heart. Not us with a sword. And when he comes back, the rebellion will all end, and that will be a physical and a spiritual judgment. By him, again, not by us. We need to get that clear in our minds. We don't bring the kingdom with the sword We don't bring the kingdom with a ballot. We don't bring the kingdom with a ballot. Which is not to say don't vote. And not to say don't vote as you think would be best and wisest given as you understand God. But it it means that we're not going to bring the kingdom with a ballot. The kingdom is within. He'll bring it with the word and prayer. And then at the end he'll bring it in judgment. And he will bring it in judgment. He will deal with all of the enemies. Despite all opposition, the kingdom will come. And we are shown that here now for the sake of encouragement and warning, which leads us to the second point. I think the hard part is behind us. The sobering part is behind us. We have, I think, something sweet to think about here. Let me put it like this. Here's the second point. Warning, but a warning of hope. i put it like this. Be wise. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Be wise. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That's wording from Psalm 2. Which tracks very closely with what's going on here in, in these couple of chapters. The setting up of a king, the, the choosing of a king, and, and God, the, the Father saying, I will be a son to him, and, and I will lift him up, and I will give him a rod of iron with which he will rule the nations. It's all in Psalm 2. And then the psalmist warns the nations, Now therefore, O kings, in light of God and God's king and him giving him power to rule, O oh therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord. And then, he says, kiss the sun, Honor Him. Pay Him homage. Kiss the Son. Lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So I'm taking language from that psalm and saying, Be wise, blessed are all who take refuge in him. I use language from Psalm 2, but where I get that, I come at that, by noticing in this passage that there is one king, isn't there? There is one king that he did not strike. Right in the middle of the passage. One king who did not suffer what everybody else did. Toy, king of Hamath, even changed his son's name. That king, in the words of Psalm 2, served the Lord and kissed the Son and found in David blessed refuge from his enemy, blessed deliverance from the one who was his threat. Everybody else saw David as the threat and fought against him, and this one sees David as the deliverer from his threat. And comes to him and gives him allegiance. Then at the end we find that those who are actually in the kingdom, look what they enjoy. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. A kingdom of plenty, a kingdom that prospers, a kingdom where there is equity and justice administered. What a kingdom is supposed to be and what a king is supposed to be, that's what David is. 15, 16, 17, and 18. The good life under the wing of the king beneath the lord so christian we need to think about that so often for us here we we look around and we see the opposition Opposition of all different sorts. some opposition, some, some things that cause us to struggle are plain old, ordinary, fallen world things that are common to man. We, like everybody else, if you're Christian, just like everybody else, you, you suffer under stresses of life and work and health, confusion and worry and fatigue and etc. Everybody gets sick. Everybody has to pay the bills. Everybody has relational problems, common demand. but struggle here in a world because the world has fallen, the world's broken. So we face that. And he wants to communicate in this, well, it's not the main, the main point is is in the, the striking. But what does the striking bring? And he wants to communicate something to you here. What the striking bring? the striking is not Because God's ticked off at people. The striking has the purpose all along. God's purpose is to set up a kingdom to bless a people and to bless the name of His Son and to bless His own name. To set up a people and to bless them. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. God is not... We should not think of Him as... The primary defining characteristic of God is angry at sinners. The primary defining characteristic of God is way, way committed to the exaltation of His own glory for the good of people. How you look at that affects how you think about God and what you think is going on here now. His primary posture is not, I hate them. His primary posture is, I want to lift up me so as to bless you and honor me. So He wants to say to you, I'm striking down all your enemies to give you a land of rest. It will come. Blessed are all who take refuge in Me. And we are very tempted, very inclined, because we have weak sight. We are very inclined to see all the opposition and say, I take refuge in you, but I suffer. Oh my God. Yes, I know. The kingdom's coming. Blessed are all who take refuge in me. You have a place, an inheritance, a standing in a world. Picture this. Christian, think. Read. Just read verse 15 and think. Justice and equity to all His people. That's describing a certain time period in 985 B.C. To show us what the kingdom is like and what it will be like. You have a standing. You have a standing in a place Of justice and equity for all his people, for you. You have a standing there because he wants to give that to you. He didn't find himself sideways and obligated, and so he surrenders it to you begrudgingly. That's the point to set up a kingdom of righteousness and justice and equity, full of the glory of the Lord for you to drink up, swim in, gaze upon, and enjoy forever. You have a standing in that kingdom, and it is coming. It is even broken in right now, just a little bit. If you look around, I have eyes to see it. Do not, do not despair. And I know I say that I'm talking to some of you and some of you are thinking, I'm so far from despair. Everything's going pretty well for me. Well, bless, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord then. And wait a little while. But some of you right now, the kingdom is awesome. And it is surely Coming. Do not despair of that and do not, oh, do not veer off in unbelief, seeing all the opposition all around, armed and angry. Do not veer off away from believing in God's coming kingdom off into substitutes that that will just hurt you in the end and will not satisfy your heart. Now, I'm preaching the minor point here. This is not the main point of the passage. But it is the kingdom that's coming from all the striking. Because God's determination, God's goal is to bring that kingdom. Not just about striking. The kingdom comes to you. It comes. The king comes. And right now, the war wages. That's the world we live in. And the kingdom is coming right now I've already alluded to this a little bit. By the power of God poured through the king to conquer you even now. In a different way. But he's after you, to conquer you now by by another power, another unexpected power. The power that He wielded to raise Christ from the dead is a work in you to change you. I remind you of that. I, I point out to you the Gospel's work in your life because I do not only want to, and it would only be half a solution only to point to the kingdom that is coming out there down there and, and say basically right now you've got to suck it up and muddle through. The kingdom is coming, but it's already come and it lives in you and, and He is at work every day in you right now to conquer, to take more ground in your own heart. Bless His name for that. He's at work to save you. But I have to point out here as a close, while there is good hope extended here to a Christian, there is a warning with hope extended to the person who's not a Christian. There was one king who was not struck down. But that's because he responded rightly to King David. He saw him as a deliverer and not as a threat. So I have to ask you, do you have eyes to see God's work through his king as a saving work for you or only as a threat to you? What do you see? We have to be very clear. All kingdoms fall. We saw in chapter 7, instruction to mankind about the kingdom of David tells all of mankind there is one king and one kingdom that stands, and it's not yours. It isn't. You have eyes to see that, Or are you going to take up arms against him and continue to resist him? That is a losing proposition. God tells you now so that you don't face then. The kingdom comes one way or the other. Do you have eyes to see him as offering to you now peace because he will not offer it forever? We are not talking about options and choices and concepts and theories. Something of eternal importance for you is on the table in front of you right now. I'm talking to you. I don't know who you are, but I'm talking to you. Man, woman, maybe boy, maybe girl. There's something right here in front of you that's saying another kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, will press in and conquer. And right now you have a chance to yield. Turn to Him. He is a great Savior from your real enemy. the real enemy that lives within you and in folly deceives you into thinking that you are God, it's a liar. That is a lie. Oh, would you see him? There is a kingdom that comes. Soberly, it will crush all opposition If there is only one way to stand on the right side of this king and it is by simple faith in Christ's death on the cross period that's some combination of Christ's death plus the good things that you've done you haven't done any good things the Bible's clear One sin is the equivalent of being a lawbreaker. There are no degrees in this sense. Faith in Christ saves you. Trust Him. And Christian, trust Him. The kingdom will come despite all the opposition that you see now, it will come. It will bring a glorious kingdom to do you good. Let me pray. Lord, look over your people. Look over Your people and refine our understanding. Press into us sobering realities of judgment. Wean us away from pride. Wean us away from avoiding that reality and not talking about it. And Lord, those who are here Those who don't know you, Lord, graciously open their minds, open their eyes, give them sight to see you as a great Savior. And to be warned that now is the time to kiss the sun, lest your wrath be kindled against them. Lord, do a work in individual hearts. Each person here has something. They need to hear from You. Would You speak? Would You stir up hope in us that the kingdom will come and if need be, warn. Exalt the name of the King, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.